Hi there, Peter here, and it's that time of the month where we repost a favourite episode from our archives. Now, we've quite a good record of picking prize winners and bestsellers here at Travels Through Time, and it is really great to get the first interview on books that go on to do great things. This episode from 2020 is a perfect example of that. Craig Brown's book, One, Two, Three, Four, The Beatles in Time, went on to win the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction. But before it did that, Brown spoke about 1963 and Beatlemania with Artemis. This is great fun. Enjoy. episode, a time when Britain seemed revitalised after the drab post-war years, a time when anything seemed possible. Leading the charge of the new cultural movement, of course, was a band from Liverpool called The Beatles. Today's guest is a prolific, prize-winning and much-loved journalist and humorist. Craig Brown is known for his parodies in Private Eye and for writing more than a dozen books. His latest, One, Two, Three, Four, The Beatles in Time, is just out. According to the Sunday Times, it is a ridiculously enjoyable treat. Also a ridiculously enjoyable treat is this conversation between Craig and Artemis. Please excuse the occasional burst of doodling underneath the microphone from Craig. You'll just have to imagine him scribbling away like a latter-day John Lennon. Otherwise, enjoy. So thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time, Craig. It's my pleasure. So I thought we could start by, I could just ask you some questions about your book, One, Two, Three, Four, The Beatles in Time, because I'd really like to know how, you know, there are so many books about the Beatles out there. It feels like quite a brave endeavour to write a new one. Yes, I saw somewhere that there were 733 (laughs) books, so mine is the 734th. They tend to be either very dogged, telling you almost what they did every minute of their lives, if they drive in a car, telling you what the registration number of the car is and that kind of thing. So every detail, so Proustian detail. (laughs) Or they're very, very niche. Like I've got a book called The Beatles in Coventry. Uh, Or or I've got the autobiography of the Beatles hairdresser, Leslie Cavendish. Wow. That kind of thing. But I thought that there was nothing which kind of combined autobiography, uh, history, kind of random thoughts, Mm. little intellectual essays, parallel histories, you know, sort of what if such Mm. and such Mm. hadn't happened. And I I think also there was a slight sense of humour lacking about the Beatles, uh, about the way people have written about the Beatles. And the Beatles were, you know, certainly in the first few years, they they had great fun and they they were funny. So I think it's appropriate to... Yeah. to do a funny book and it's also appropriate when they go slightly off the rails to be slightly more cynically humorous yeah i thought there was something to be done there and i was worried that the the beatles nerds who there are hundreds of people who you know argue about the tiniest detail mm. but i so i thought they wouldn't uh enjoy the book but they they there doesn't seem to be any major criticism of it good <laughs> they've they've um given you granted you mercy on this occasion i think so <laughs> <laughs> i was i wanted to actually ask you about the the chapter in which you discuss john is meant to have punched someone at a party or he has oh, yes. he did punch someone at a party and there are all you go you run through all of the different 
versions of this story, both from people who were there or people who heard it secondhand, and then all of the biographies, really thoroughly going through exactly, in a very funny way, exactly, you know, who says exactly what the assault was like and what it was caused by and what was the aftermath and that kind of thing, to the point where you even make a table uh, laying it all down. And I <laughs> yes. thought... Yeah, oh, yeah sorry. I was just going to say, I, I thought it was, A, it's really funny, but it's kind of made me think, well, that is what history is. Well, if this, if uh, what happened in probably, I think it was probably 1962 or 63, John beating up this disc jockey in Liverpool. If people can't even get things accurately that recently, then how can you possibly think that, mm. you know, Henry VIII's court or something or further back in medieval times... Uh, how can you get any degree of accuracy? And it's very, I mean, historians always say, oh, well, you know, written sources, but um, the written sources are very likely to have made it up or have got the wrong, the wrong idea. I mean, a lot of these people who were at the party and witnessed the, the beating up, you know, they spoke pretty quickly after it and they all had a different idea. So they weren't just lying. It was just misreading of the situation. And people's relationship with the Beatles is so emotive that you feel like you 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 believe the interpretation that suits what you think, what you want to believe about yes. John Lennon. Yes. Yeah. So so if you think John is uh, marvelous, you you make the the injuries he did to this disc jockey who was called Bob Wooler, you make them very minor. And if you don't like John, you make them major. There's a particularly virulently anti-John biographer called Albert Goldman. He virtually had Bob Wooler as dead on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> And if you check anything in the Bob Wooler book, which was the first huge book about John Lennon, it's it's not accurate. He, really? What was it? Know. Why why did he have such a vendetta against John? I think I think he was one of those um, biographers, like uh, another one is Kitty Kelly. The, uh, Amer- American biographers tend to be either uh, very honest, very fact checky, slightly dry, or completely off the rails <laughs> just putting in whatever they want yeah. and, uh, and there doesn't seem to be much in between I think English biography is more it's not necessarily knockabout but it's, it's slightly more uh, lively were there any uh, biographies that you came or generally books about the Beatles that you came across while you were researching that any avid Beatle fan listeners can uh, can make sure they go and read after they've obviously read your one well I like first person ones so there are quite a lot of uh, most of them would be ghost written but i can't see anything wrong with ghost written books it's just a form of oral history uh, if they're done well there's one by john's best friend from school who who remained his a kind of constant friend through his life called pete shotten mm. uh, and that gives a very vivid picture of them as 10 year old kind of they were, they were mad on the just william books and a lot you can see i have a chapter on them the influence of Just William on John Lennon's life. And so I'd say the Pete Shotton book. We're going to have to focus in on just one year today. Yes. Um, so I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests. If you could travel back in time to any year in history, what year would it be? The year I've chosen is 1963, which you could say is barely history. I was born in 1957, so I was six years old. But I, I'm interested in, in the, the age of sort of five or six for, for anyone, because I think it's when you first become aware of, of news beyond the family and mm. beyond the village. And so it's the first year that I remember, uh, you know, distinct things. Do uh, you remember hearing about the Beatles? Yes, I think it must have been at the end of 1963 that at Christmas that we were, my brothers and I were given um, 
Beatles wigs for, uh, for Christmas. It can't have been the main, I hope it wasn't our main <laughs> Christmas present, because they, were, they weren't even real wigs. They were made out of plastic and they cut into your, you know, if you moved your head slightly, you'd feel your ear being sort of pierced. Yeah. Um, we were aware of the Beatles and I think everyone was aware of the Beatles. It was, and, and as everyone went on about their hair and even though it now looks you know, almost bizarrely short. I remember the the wigs. I don't have any other distinct memory of the Beatles. It's amazing to think how quickly, even then, they were being turned into, like, that kind of really tacky merchandise was already being seized upon as, a, like, something that could be done out of their fame. I discovered while sort of researching Brian Epstein, their manager, that it took Brian Epstein completely by surprise. It, that, that kind of merchandising hadn't been done before, or not in such a big way. And though Brian Epstein was a very good manager and an honest man, he completely misjudged that. And he sold, I don't think I put it into the book because it, it was too complicated, but basically he sold the rights to the merchandising for, for virtually nothing. He, he could have got sort of 70% and he got sort of 2% or something. And that was the only big mistake he made as, a, as their manager. You know, in, in America in particular, in, by 1964, they, they, took, they were a, a year later to become famous in America. They were selling things like um, air that the Beatles had breathed. Or, uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> after, they'd, after they'd stayed in a hotel, they cut up all the sheets and sold you know, them in square inches. Uh, there's a, something in the book that Beatles wigs at one point, when they were over there in 1964, they were importing sort of 50,000 to New York every, every day. I mean, I mean, or perhaps it was every week. So I think George Martin said when their producer, when he was in New York, he looked out of the car window and saw quite ordinary businessmen wearing Beatles wigs. <laughs> Yeah so, yeah, so it was the year of merchandising. That's interesting. Well, we're going to not just talk about the Beatles today because I know the first um, scene that you've chosen to visit in uh, 1963 is the Great Train Robbery in yes. August. So would you like to tell us a bit about where you'd like to be uh, in the story of the Great Train Robbery? Yes. Well, I remember the Great Train Robbery is the first um, really exciting story that I became aware of in the papers. And I remember reading all the papers avidly um, to see more and more about the train robbery. Uh, and excitingly for me as a six-year-old, they dumped some of the money at Leith Hill near Dorking, and we lived just near Dorking. Oh. So £100,000 was found <laughs> in at Leith Hill where we used to go on bicycle rides and things. So I, I had this amazing idea that, you know, I would soon be the beneficiary of, of uh, <laughs> Their theft. There must be more money to be found, and so that was very exciting. But basically, what had happened is in August 1963, these uh, 15 villains stopped a Royal Mail train, which was carrying what would today it's two two and a half million pounds in, in those days, which would be roughly 55 million pounds now, in used banknotes. I think they were just going to be destroyed. So you could say it's almost a victimless crime. Uh, they stopped the train and robbed it. They did actually cosh the driver uh, and say it wasn't entirely victimless. They got away. It was all very, very well planned, very, very well executed. They got away with all but eight of the 128 sacks that there were, and they got them into a big van and scooted off, and they went to a place called Leather Slade Farm, which is about... Uh, 
30, 27 miles away. And they hung out in Leatherstone Farm. They'd bought this farm a few months earlier, and that was where they were going to hang out. They then got, they managed to tune into police radio systems. So they, and they realized that uh, the police thought they were kind of in the area. They thought, the police thought they were within a, 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 an hour radius of the crime. And so they then decided eventually to scoot away before they had planned to. And they left behind in Leatherstone things like 34 loo rolls and so it proved that they were there for going to be there for a long time they'd originally planned anyway where i'd like to be in 1963 is at leather slade farm playing a monopoly with them because they they played monopoly obviously these 15 uh rogues had to pass the time in some way they couldn't uh, go outside at all or they'd be recognized and so they played monopoly but with real money because they had all this real money uh and actually i mean actually now i probably could <laughs> mr mr rich um I, I could play monopoly just about with real money because you can buy things you know most expensive is mayfair for 400 pounds well, I'm not, I suppose it would be a push to get a complete set of all the properties. But anyway, it did, plus hotels and things. But obviously in those days, £400 would have been uh, far more. So uh, that would have been exciting, I think. And then with people listening to the police radios and that air of tension, I probably wouldn't have liked their company, actually. I mean, they, they were quite thuggy characters. Uh, and I don't think they'd have liked me. I'd, I'd like to have been a fly on the wall rather than a participant. I, I'm sure they argued about, you know, who owed what money to who in the Monopoly game. Well, their, uh, their characters is something that I wanted to ask you about because I, I was reading about how people at the time before they were caught, the press would ask people on the street, what do you think about this, the great train robbery? And they'd kind of be like, oh, you know, well good on them like I hope they kind of like they didn't feel that um, opposed to the idea they kind of had a no I think it was it was like and of course you know at school we learned about Robin Hood and um, there's actually a big Saturday night series of Robin Hood uh, riding through the Glen and you know and, that, and they did seem a bit like Robin Hood and his merry men sort of stealing from the rich and well they didn't give to the poor unless you classify the, the, themselves as poor but um, uh, and there was I did see uh just recently, when I was sort of looking up about it, that actually Graham Greene, after I'm um, leaping ahead, basically they were arrested, sent to prison. Then uh, two of well, five of them escaped from, or two of them escaped from prison. Um, and at the time of their escape, uh, Graham Greene wrote to the Telegraph, and he said. Am I one of a minority in feeling admiration for the skill and courage <laughs> behind the great train robbery? More important, am I in a minority in being shocked by the savagery of the sentences? Mm. Um, uh, because they were, they were sentenced to 30 years in prison. Wow. Amazing, really, given that there was a little bit of violence, but not much. And then it was only done by one of them. Uh, why do you think people felt so sympathetic towards them? Well, I think it was because they saw them as kind of, you know, kind of lovable rogues. And they'd, it was very, very cleverly planned. I think it was probably, you know, it was the same time as kind of Michael Caine was in those kind of films where, where it all sort of heist films. So I think everyone felt that it was a bit of an adventure. And it was such an outrageous amount of money. Mm. And obviously people like it if they're not stolen from themselves. And so I think that was... 
the reason. Though the judge said it was a crime of sordid violence inspired by vast greed. Mm, pretty which I, stuff. I suppose, I suppose you, you could argue, I think saying sordid, I, they sort of coshed the tra- train driver, which is bad. He, they always say that he died you know, later of the injuries, but in fact he died of leukemia seven years later. He didn't go back to work. So, so it was kind of GBH, but it, but it, you know, it wasn't um, mass murder. What, to what extent do you think you could link it to people often talk about the end of an age of deference happening in the 60s and being people being more in favour of anti-establishment figures? Maybe you could say that a bit about the Beatles in some ways. You certainly could say it about the great train robbers. I, I guess that if it had happened 10 years earlier, people would have been less sympathetic. But there was something about the kind of Ealing... It was a kind of Ealing comedy idea, I think. That that was what they seemed most like. And, of course, when when they were on the run, I think five were on the run because some hadn't been caught anyway. That was an amazing kind of hijinks. I mean, Ronnie Biggs scaled the prison wall, jumped onto the top of a lorry, and then got to Paris, had, his, had a bit of plastic surgery, then got to... Australia. Then he was being, uh, he was almost found in Australia, and so he moved to Rio de Janeiro. And people were following the life of Ronnie Biggs right up. I mean, he he then came back to Britain to die. Really, this robbery kept the public enthralled really for forty years. The other ones went to Mexico, and and it, it was just you know people on the run is always exciting. I think. So he evaded capture for all of his life yeah virtually i mean he he was he was caught went to prison escaped very quickly from prison and then he was found in brazil and there was a great i think it was called slipper of the yard this policeman had been you know manically trying to catch him it got him in brazil but luckily for biggs he'd got his girlfriend pregnant and so they couldn't extradite him because he had a a, a Sun on the way. It is a it is a really good story. It's there's something irresistible about it and romantic, even though you kind of know that if you look if you looked into the details of it, they probably were all not very nice people and criminals. Yeah, most of them had been to uh, prison before, and um, yeah, yeah, they were rough types. Yeah, um, I wonder if it. Well, there's so many popular TV programs nowadays, aren't there, about gangsters like. Um, Peaky Blinders and stuff like that. Yes, yes. I wonder... who, are, who are turned into kind of heroes, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I wonder if that trend started with the Great Train Robbery or... Yes, it could have done. So for your next scene, we're somewhere a lot cosier than in the like hiding out with criminals. Um, yes. Well, would you like to introduce where we are? Um, well, I've... Uh, because of the Beatles and my interest in the Beatles, uh, I've chosen to be in uh, the end of 1963 at 57 Wimpole Street with Paul McCartney and that's where he was living. In April 1963 the Beatles appeared at the Royal Albert Hall with an odd little assembly. I love the the groups you see on the bills in those days, on the playbills, uh, because there's sort of such an odd mixture but it was with Del Shannon who did that song Runaway, Rolf (laughs) Harris who we all know about Shane Fenton, who then became Alvin Stardust and became um, sort of briefly famous in the 1970s, and George Melly, the jazz singer. So it's kind of mixed bag. Anyway, this was the first 
concert where things had gone completely wild, really screaming, climbing on the roof of their car and blocking the way. And sent along by the Radio Times to interview the Beatles and to cover the concert was the 16-year-old actress who, who had been in three or four films by then, uh, Jane Asher. And she was also famous because she was on Jukebox Jury, which was the big kind of pop show. And so the Beatles, when they, they took it, she was also very pretty. So they took a real interest in her. Uh, then after the concert, they went back to a journalist's house, a very small house. And John, who was quite a bully, especially in early days, started bullying her and, and upsetting her. Paul then sort of took her to the next door room. And they, in a very sort of sedate fashion, they sat and talked about the Canterbury Tales, which they'd both studied at school. Jane at Queen's College in Harley Street, kind of private school. Paul in, in Liverpool. Paul, he had a very good English teacher, and so he was interested in English literature. You had this thing after a huge Beatles concert, of these two talk, people talking about uh, Chaucer, these two youngsters, because even Paul wasn't as young, but he was 19, 20. And then he dropped her off at her parents' house in Wimpole Street and asked for her phone number. Anyway, their romance began then. Before the year was out, he'd been invited by Jane's parents to go and live. He had his own room at the Asher's house in Wimpole Street. They were a particularly interesting family, which is, I think, why one of the reasons Paul so landed on his feet. I mean, Jane Asher's an attractive, nice person, and her parents were particularly interesting. Her father uh, was a doctor, Dr. Richard Asher. He would be famous in a way, regardless of this connection, because uh, in 1951, he'd identified uh, and named Munchausen's syndrome. Oh. Uh, so he's sort of part of history, in, in medical history. He also wrote very funny articles for the British Medical Journal, which I really enjoyed reading, and I wasn't expecting to uh, understand even the, any article in the BMJ. One of them was called, Why Are Medical Journals So Dull? <laughs> so anyway, within this environment, Paul really blossomed. The other Beatles were kind of either just married or, or having fun going to nightclubs. And he, he rather loved this, the intelligent cultural conversations. There were also two other brothers uh, Jane had. They played word games and they, they would sort of have proper sit-down dinners and argue about sort of intellectual things. Or, uh, Paul remembered one argument between Dr. Asher and Peter, uh, who was Paul's age, on when the tomato was first introduced mm. to England. So they're very specific historical discussions. Yeah. At the same time, uh, Margaret Asher, the, Jane's mother, was a, uh, a music teacher and she had actually taught George Martin, I think it was the oboe at the Royal College of Music, and she taught uh, Paul to play the recorder. He could already play piano and guitar and he played it on Fool in On the Hill. But they also you know, encouraged him to read widely. So he read Jung and Aldous Huxley and went to Pinter plays and listened to Stockhausen. So he just kind of broadened his horizons. Mm. And at the same time, he was, it was very fruitful time for him composing. These amazing songs would just kind of pour out of him. There was a music room at the, on the, in the basement. And so when Margaret Asher wasn't using it, he would sit at, his, at the piano there and he composed, just in that, there should be a plaque in Wimpole Street. And he composed, I want to hold your hand, and I love her, we can work it out, mm. here, there, and everywhere. And yesterday, I mean, famously, he, he woke up having dreamt the tune of yesterday. I mean, yeah. he just woke up with it in his head. To be, I, I don't want to just be in Wimpole Street. 
I want I want to be Paul in Wimpole Street. Yeah, and I want <laughs> but, to be uh, Jane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was a kind of perfect um, setup. And and he was there for a few years, sort of uh, three or four years. They were engaged, and then the engagement broke off. But it was a kind of it was a perfect time for him, and and very productive. And uh, you, you've touched a bit on it already, but do you? I mean, about how fruitful his composing was. Do you feel like they really had an enormous influence on him? And perhaps how did that? How did he start to maybe differ from the other three in his writing if they weren't also having that same experience that he was having? I mean, he's he's discreet about it. That uh, you know, unusually, these people now neither he or Jane has ever talked about their relationship, and so I suppose he he doesn't talk much about living there, other than. He's always been very appreciative of the ashes. I, I think John did pop round, and John and he were still composing things together. Mm. I mean, I think definitely yesterday was purely Paul, but mm. um, I want to hold your hand. They wrote together, and and so I, I think um, the John Paul partnership it was always quite rivalrous in that they wanted, and that's what spurred them on. They each wanted to better the other in some way. And I think that applies to all the kind of songwriting partnerships. I really love And maybe, maybe any artistic partnership, it, you know, you're friends, but you're also rivals. And so they're always trying to top each other. And I think they never sat down to write a song without a song coming out. I mean, they, they could write a song in an hour or two. Mm. And I think also at that time, it's with other pop stars like Bob Dylan or Paul Simon, the, the, the really good ones, that they are very, very ambitious, even at that kind of hippie-ish time. When they were 16, 17 and writing songs in Liverpool in the bedrooms in Liverpool they would always write a new song by Lennon and McCartney mm -hmm. as if they were already established yeah and I think that conveys their sense of great determination to succeed yeah yeah definitely it, it is an amazing scene I, I, I know you, you wrote in the book that if you could be any beast at any time you'd be Paul uh, in, yeah there <laughs> I kind of completely agree I, I also think that it's maybe this is just my personal preference for Paul as a as a huge Beatles fan myself, um, but I always felt slightly resentful that John gets the reputation for being the really. Well, I'm glad one. you say that because actually, because most people I think tend to side with John, and especially after they broke up, there was always you know they broke up, you know it ended in tears at least for a time, and they would write. John would write letters to Melody Maker and New Musical Express against Paul. I mean, it was completely sort of crazy feud in public mm. in the way you had to like you had earlier to choose between the stones and the beatles but people had to choose between john and paul and mm. and that that still lingered and then of course after john died he became sanctified and paul was seen oh is this uh you know he's the commercial one you know yeah. he's he's less talented he's uh he's less passionate he's more of a sort of showman uh, and I think now people are, are realising how without Paul, I, I think that maybe without John, Paul would have succeeded because I think Paul is, has that kind of, uh, that drive, mm. talent. I, I think John was too lazy and too uh, uncontrollable to, yeah. to have succeeded without Paul. I mean, that doesn't take away from John's talent, but, uh, but obviously they were best together and I don't yeah. think either was as good solo. No, and I, I think it was that sense of competition um, that became a kind of symbiotic thing. I think people talk about the the fact that Paul tends to write more 
ballads or more kind of commercial music as if that's somehow easier when actually it's quite it is still very hard to write songs that are going to sell really well you know that's not like a oh a, yes and also uh, melody he had this amazing gift for melody which is really the at the basic basis of uh music i think yeah and and john in new york you know in the 1970s i can't remember if i put it in the book or not but but i think yoko actually said after he's not always as loyal as she sort of makes out uh, to John she, she said that he hated go, go he'd go into smart hotels in the you know the plaza in the New York or something like that and the pianist thinking to suck up would immediately play yesterday which of <laughs> and the pianist would always play a Paul song thinking oh well, they're Lennon McCartney songs they people you know have only quite recently started making the the distinction between mm. the, the songs by McCartney and uh, and Lennon would would be really upset by this because basically people covered Paul's songs, lots of other artists. I mean, I think yesterday has been covered by two thousand different people. I think it's a, in the Guinness Book of Records. It's the most covered record. Wow! I can't remember what. I suppose people have sung Imagine or something a few times, but. Um, you know, John's songs haven't been covered nearly as much. I mean, maybe that doesn't mean anything, but but it certainly upset John. I wondered if we could speak a bit more broadly about what the Beatles are up to in 1963, because I know that in your book you you really pivot it as a really significant moment in their career and a kind of the ascent towards absolute stardom really happens in 1963. And also the fact that the term Beatlemania was coined in that year as well. Yes, basically, with uh, 1963, they began 1963 in obscurity. Uh, they were playing, you know, village halls in the Highlands and sleep on top of one another in the van, in vans, in the freezing cold, just to try and keep warm and that kind of thing. They ended it. Probably the four most famous people, people in Britain, and then by February uh, 1964 or March. Um, they'd become the foremost p- famous people in the world, I think, because they'd cracked America mm. suddenly, uh, unbelievably uh, famous. But it did, uh, in England, it, it happened less dramatically than in America, but it, but it was still, they were on a, a tour with Helen Shapiro, who was then age 16, and she was a big star. And they, were, they started off sort of eighth on the bill, so they'd be almost the opening act, and they would play for 10 minutes. But by the end of the tour, which was only, um, I don't know, six weeks long or something, uh, I think they were number two. And poor Helen Shapiro's latest single had only got to sort of, you know, 28 or 30. Mm. Uh, And they were on a tour bus with Helen Shapiro, who they got on well with. And she was obviously a nice person. And she saw this headline in one of the music music papers, "Is is Helen a has-been at 16? I'm a terrible thing. And of course she... She was, and uh, actually, you know, having been rude about John before, he was actually kind to her there, and he kind of comforted her. Um, but it, but it showed how dramatically uh, their success came when it did. They'd obviously been they'd been playing together since they first met in 1957. They played in one form of band or another, mm. so so they'd been obscure for quite long. But once fame started to kick in, it, it really kicked in quickly. I also find the um i guess the discourse surrounding the hysteria a really fascinating one because um i guess the 
Elvis Presley before had in, inspired that kind of um, that kind of female hysteria, quote unquote, yes. from his fans. And it's a kind of like I guess it's basically a sexual frenzy. That's what I find so interesting about the phenomen the cultural phenomenon of Beatlemania because it's you imagine that you're a 14 year old girl growing up in the 60s and maybe you're not given any particular opportunity to express that you might want to have sex with a boy and it might be seen as still quite taboo and yet here is this band that you can go and see with your friends and you can all just scream because you're so excited by them and that's well it's not socially acceptable because people did write um disparagingly about it but it kind of is like an outlet for you i'm always i always really feel like that's what's going on underneath all of the screaming is a some kind of repressed female sexuality that's looking for an avenue i think it is and and girls didn't really scream at the rolling stones who obviously looked more like men yeah Uh, there was something kind of boyish about and so so i think it was probably that idea that you know you could go so far but only so far with them yeah I mean, that actually was, wasn't true. I mean, they were having a, a high old time. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, and you cover that a bit in the, uh, in the early years in Hamburg. Hello there, it's Peter. Imagine this, a picture of the four Beatles that no one has ever seen before until this week. Given the enormous and enduring popularity of the Fab Four, I think that's quite a thing, but it's what we have for you today on Travels Through Time. I've been telling you in recent weeks about our partnership with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd. Well, he's colorized a picture of the four smiling Beatles on the night of their very, very first American concert. It catches brilliant details as George and Ringo cigarettes, there's the flashlights of those 1960s cameras. There's this air of bedazzlement kind of written into their faces and you can see that three out of four of them are wearing brand new coats which is a sign of their new found wealth you can check out this brand new image along with a full range of jordan's work at colorgraph.co that's colorgraph spelt the american way c-o-l-o-r colorgraph.co where you can buy prints of jordan's work on subjects from mark twain to well john lennon now they make unique and fabulous presents so do check out colorgraph.co. Shall we move on to our third scene okay. or your third scene? What would you like to visit as your third and final scene in 1963? Well, I've chosen the um, Texas School Book uh, Depository, I think it was called, uh, in, in Dallas in 1963, November 1963, when Lee Harvey Oswald uh, was up there with his gun, and he shot President Kennedy dead. Once again, I wouldn't like to, I'd like to be hiding behind one of the bookshelves, I think. Mm. So I wouldn't want Lee Harvey Oswald to know I was there. But I think it's, I've I've chosen this also because of becoming aware of news in 1963. I remember at my first school, which is called Grove House, also near Dorking, we had a very good teacher called Miss Farrah, and I remember her teaching us about the, she almost made it into a project, the um, JFK assassination. So she'd put those charts up on the wall, which would show the, you know, the direction the gun was shot at and you know, that sort of thing and the car going along. And, uh, and of course, it, it became the big news story of almost of the 20th century. I mean, uh, it was hard to underrate it as a news story and it kept going because of this and these conspiracy theories you know did the Harvey Oswald do it was he if he did do it uh was he alone mm. and so I thought if I was in the in the book depository I'd, I'd be able to see what, 
see him doing it if he, and uh, and see if he was alone. Mm. I've always been very interested also in the conspiracies because in in a way like we were talking about when John Lennon beat up the disc jockey and how many mm. different versions there were. There were just limitless, with conspiracy theories, there are limitless theories, especially with this one, you know, of who did it. And, and, and each one, even though they all contradict each other, each one has a kind of logic to it. And, and I think you can form any theory uh, from any amount of random information and mm. you, can always, you can always join the dots together and something will come out. It's like, you know, looking at a fire or a cloud and seeing a face in it. You know, mm. there will be a face if you, or looking at a car and seeing a face. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I just read recently of there was a man who was uh, interviewed by the Warren Commission into the assassination. Which uh, actually, I think he was, it was a later commission, but he was basically known as there's the famous Sapruda film where this man took sort of thirty seconds of film of the assassination just to pass a by who happened to have a camera and this has been gone over and over again and there was someone on the grassy knoll which is just beside the car the president's car as it was passing as he was shot who was known as the umbrella man and people really fixated there's conspiracy theorists fixated on the umbrella man because it was a very very sunny day in dallas and he was the only person carrying an umbrella and as the president's limousine approached you could see you can see on the film the man of the umbrella spins his umbrella from east to west and and so afterwards he, and then he sits on the sidewalk uh, i think there's another photograph of him sitting uh, on the sidewalk next to another man before getting up and then walking towards the uh, texas school book depository mm. and so there were a whole lot of people who said oh did he fire a dart with a paralyzing agent to make the president more of a sitting duck for Lee Harvey Oswald, or was he acting as a signaller mm. uh, to communicate about firing a second round if that was necessary? So all this kind of stuff. It was even in the Oliver Stone film. Anyway, in 1978, so well, 15 years after the assassination, a man called Louis Stephen Witt came forward. He hadn't even seen these conspiracy theories about, but he was the man with the umbrella. And he... The reason for this umbrella is just so interesting, I think, because it was completely bizarre. But he, he wanted to taunt uh, President Kennedy because Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy, had been a great kind of supporter of appeasement before the Second World War and was a great fan of Chamberlain. And Chamberlain was always portrayed as carrying an umbrella. Oh. <laughs> and so there were always cartoons of Chamberlain, uh, you know, the for the anti-appeasers, Chamberlain in his umbrella was always a thing. And so this man, to taunt Joe Kennedy's son, the president, had brought an umbrella. And that was why he was, that's why he had it up on a sunny day. And that, uh, you know, and that's now completely accepted as, as the reason. But, but for 15 years, it was a huge conspiracy theory. And I, I just think that that's a, a fascinating kind of sideline. Yeah. Do you think there's something unique about that particular news story that inspired so many um, conspiracy theories? Was it just because it was so shocking to people that somebody as charismatic as JFK could be killed so instantly they needed to find further ways of explaining or making sense of it? Yes. And also because uh, basically Oswald was arrested pretty quickly after he was coming from a courtroom or uh, from jail, I can't remember. He was then shot by this man, Jack Ruby. Mm. And so suddenly, so you never got 
the resolution. You, you never, he was never on trial. He never spoke. No one ever uh, knew why he did it, if he did it, or why Jack Ruby had shot him. And so then there were lots of conspiracy theories. If Jack Ruby had been told by, the, say, the mafia or um, Fidel Castro, you've got to shoot uh, Oswald so he doesn't speak. Or you know, so there were, it just extended the the conspiracy theory. And then of course Jack. Ruby died of cancer eventually. And also, he was the most powerful man in the world, and as you say, very charismatic uh, Kennedy. And it seemed completely unthinkable. I mean, part, going back to the Beatles, uh, serious people have said that part of the unbelievable success of uh, the Beatles three months later when they came to America was because this kind of the period of grieving was over and they just wanted something fresh and young and uplifting and mm -hmm. optimistic. And I think there's a lot to be said for that uh, yeah. in terms of the Beatles. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, do you feel like there are, there's anything that links those three events together or are they random? Well, I suppose there's a kind of link in the sort of the underdogs. Uh, well, certainly with, uh, with the great train robbers and the Beatles, you could see, you know, kind of working class heroes. And that was very much a, a feature of, of the early uh, 60s uh, that you know up up to then the working classes had always sort of either been portrayed as butlers or servants mm. or as sort of cheeky chappies you know sort of uh, like kind of cockney comedians and suddenly the the, the Beatles didn't sort of uh, go along with any of that they just they were just themselves and were happy to be who they were and so that was, and I suppose you could say that the same of uh, the great train robbers in a way. They just sort of got on with, with doing the mm. business. Um, it, I, I, I suppose you could say Lee Harvey Oswald was a sort of downtrodden kind of character, mm. and he shot the most famous man in the world. Mm. Uh, I mean, I suppose you could say, link uh, them in in. Fame, you know, I mean, all these, these three uh, groups of people uh, became famous, and me, conceivably, one of Oswald's, he was, he was sort of slightly, he had that weird checkered political past. He had gone to the Soviet Union and things, but uh, but he was basically a nutcase, and I, I'd, I'd guess that one of his motivations for uh, shooting Kennedy was. The, uh, the fame that would then accrue to him and it mm. obviously has accrued to him. Mm. The train robbers didn't want to be famous. They didn't want to be caught. But having having been caught and then escaped, they quite uh, relished. And certainly Ronnie Biggs relished his fame. He even did a, a song with the Sex Pistols at one point. <laughs> really? And so, yeah, so he enjoyed the, his fame. Just to complete um, the anti-establishment <laughs> figure. Yeah, yeah. And um, and of course, the, the, the Beatles uh, became so famous and certainly enjoyed it up until about 1966 and then I, I think uh, saw its limitations uh, and there's great um, there's great argument I, I just saw on Twitter yesterday huge arguments about from Beatles nerds about who did the the bit which goes ah uh, in uh, Day in the Life just before it go, mm -hmm. goes wake up God. and some people think it was Paul and some people think it was John and these furious arguments go on even now about whether it was Paul or John seeing that little bit yeah uh, and it is it's crazy how um, obsessive people become about the Beatles yeah
Well, hopefully they all buy your book. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Yeah. You're allowed to bring one memento with you. And I just wanted to ask, what memento would you bring? Well, I would be tempted, of course, to go to Leith Hill and scour around for the, uh, you know, um, another hundred thousand pounds. <laughs> so I suppose those those banknotes would now be not legal tender anyway. So maybe I shouldn't have that. And I do remember as a child searching Leith Hill, you know, thinking well, I'd find Yes, I was going to say it seemed almost tantalisingly close. It would feel yes. like writing a historical wrong if you were able to bring <laughs> it back with you to the present. Um, so I'd, I, so, uh, yeah, but I think that would be a fruitless thing. I'd just get my hands dirty for nothing. Um, so I, I'd, I'd have to get something uh, of the Beatles. Mm. Uh, I'm not a great one for uh, choosing, buying manuscripts. I like buying paintings, but I, I, I don't get by first editions or anything like that. Nevertheless, um, you know, I suppose Paul's words for yesterday... Mm. That would be um, exciting. I mean, it would, they'd also be incredibly valuable. I don't know what, but they, you know, <laughs> I can't remember what, but some are selling for, you know, three quarters of a million pounds. Yeah. Uh, hey, Jude. I, maybe it went for even more. Just to, So I suppose I'd, I'd, yeah, so because of Wimpole Street uh, and him composing there, I'd, I'd uh, get Yesterday, but I probably wouldn't keep it i'd probably put it up for auction and really no i i know it's terrible but i <laughs> but you can't i mean the music the great thing about pop you know it's available and so the great thing about the beatles is their music and everyone can hear it it's mm. it's an entirely democratic thing with uh, uh with records and you don't even need to buy the record anymore. You just you know get it online. Uh, and so I think I think it's sort of silly to to you know people buying their electric guitars for two million pounds or mm. whatever. There's a doctor I mentioned in the book uh, called Doctor Zook who bought John Lennon's a tooth of John Lennon, which John Lennon had had out at the dentist and then then given to his housekeeper's daughter, who was a fan, <coughs> and she sold it to Doctor Zook for. Seventeen thousand pounds in uh, two thousand and ten, and Doctor Zook said that he was just going to take it round medical schools when he was giving lectures and that kind of thing. And in fact, recently it's emerged that he what he, his larger plan was to extract the DNA from the tooth and then advertise for people who thought they might be John Lennon's children, and they were going to sue the. Lennon Ono estate and, and share oh profits. <laughs> and so, so there are these ways it's you can huge, turn. <laughs> cons- literally a conspiracy behind it. I think it would be quite fun, you know, the original lyrics to Yesterday when he first was trying to come up with them were scrambled eggs, oh baby, yes. how I love your legs. I think yes, it so would... maybe I'd prefer the uh, those lyrics and the, yes, that would be more interesting to have. That would be quite fun. Yeah, the, the, have the ones with scrambled eggs. Um Yes, because now it seems inevitable that... I mean, it's not actually one of my favourite Beatles songs or anything, but, but it seems inevitable that it was called Yesterday and the, and the tune seems to go so perfectly with the, uh, with the words and that's mm. sort of a melancholy to it. But, but yes, he did wake up with scrambled eggs uh, on his mind. And he also was... This is also famous, but he, uh, he was also realised it was such a good tune he couldn't believe that he hadn't stolen it from someone. 
So for a long time, he was just ringing around saying, have you ever heard this tune? Have you heard this tune? <laughs> Uh, and then he realised it was his own. Yeah. That must have been so exciting. Mm, mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time. You indulged my 14-year-old Beatles obsessed <laughs> self a lot, so that was... No, well, I think you know more about the Beatles than I do. But, uh... That was Craig Brown, author of One, Two, Three, Four: The Beatles in Time. I enjoyed listening to their chat hugely, and I can guarantee that you'll enjoy the book too. It's had phenomenal reviews. Head to tttpodcast.com for more about the book, about the scenes we feature, and best of all, to see Jordan Lloyd's amazing new colorized picture of the four Beatles standing, cigarette in hand, before their first American gig. It catches a vital moment, not just in the Beatles' career, but also, I think, in 20th century culture as a whole. It's a terrific piece of work that shows a very young John, Paul, George and Ringo as they would have first been seen by all of those screaming fans. Go and check it out. This is our second week of Double Headers, and today we have another episode for you too. It's quite the contrast to 1963. It's with Professor Greg Wolfe, and he's taking my colleague Violet Moller off to visit some of the great cities of the ancient world. You can find that available on our feed right now. Nothing more really for me to add. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more next week. Goodbye.